We began last week the story of Joseph in Genesis, and Dinah introduced us to the betrayal from the brothers, and yet the, uh, the coat of love that had been placed upon Joseph that sustained him uh, for the adventures and misfortune that often was ahead. So we pick up the story in chapter 39. Joseph has been taken and uh, is now a slave in Egypt. And he finds himself, though, because God blesses him and blesses wherever Joseph is. He is soon promoted to be head of Potiphar's whole household. Potiphar apparently uh, runs uh, the Pharaoh's own special prison and is therefore very high up in the Pharaoh's cabinet. As we uh, pick up in chapter 39, verse 7, this can be found on page 34 of your pew Bible in uh, the Old Testament. Now, Joseph was handsome and well-built, and not long after, his master's wife took notice of him. Come to bed with me, she said, but he refused her. And he said to her, with my master in charge, with me in charge of my master, he doesn't care for anything. And everything he owns, he left in my charge. No one in the house is greater than I am. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now, why would I do this wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to him day after day, he refused to go to bed with her and wouldn't even be anywhere around her. Then one day... He went inside the house to carry out his duties, and none of the other servants were there. And his master's wife saw him, and she grabbed him by the cloak and said, Come to bed with me. And he left the cloak in her hand and ran off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. As the group of pastors were studying this uh, scripture on Tuesday, uh, Dinah made the observation. She said, well, I hope we're not going to throw Potiphar's wife under the bus. Well, let me see. Uh, according to the story, she made numerous advances on Joseph. According to the story, she finally just went out and attacked him. According to the story which followed this, when she's left with Joseph's coat in her hand, she uses it to frame him, and he's sent to prison. I don't think I'm throwing her under the bus. I think she got there and crawled under it herself. But Dinah usually has a point. So I thought I'd look a little more deeply into the matter. And I started looking at some of the rabbinic traditions around Joseph. Now, please understand this is not the force with us of Holy Scripture. But oftentimes it's stuff Jesus would have known, and there's probably a kernel of something that started it. One of the traditions goes something like this, that Potiphar's wife's name is Zuleika. And one day Zuleika walks through the kitchen, and her servants are there chopping oranges, preparing for the evening meal. And Joseph then walks through the kitchen looking really good in his robe. And so all the female servants look up and they watch Joseph go through the kitchen as they continue cutting. And apparently there's blood everywhere because they've all cut themselves. And Zuleika looks at what's happened and she says to the servants, see what I have to deal with every day? I have to look at him all the time. Interesting. Another rabbinic tradition says, you know, Joseph was much too concerned about what he looked like. He looked good and he knew it. And he walked and carried himself as a person who looked good and he knew it. 
interesting tradition. But however one explains the story, here's what happens. One of these two people will take advantage of an opportunity in a situation to get what they want. The other will not. What's the difference between Joseph and Zuleika? Well, I suppose one possibility is perhaps the time in captivity, uh, traveling all the way to, to Egypt and being uh, a slave in Egypt has given Joseph a certain amount of maturity and perspective. Perhaps Joseph understands that mature people know that they can't have everything they see. They're not entitled to everything that they want. And maybe Zuleika, in her privileged position, hasn't learned that lesson yet. Maybe. Or maybe there's this. Maybe Potiphar, in, in, who owns this house, maybe he treats his servants better than he treats his wife. Maybe he's so kind and good to Joseph that Joseph would never think of turning against him, but his wife has to suffer under him every day, and so maybe this is her opportunity. I don't know. But here's what I think I do know. One of these two has a dream that's given from God, and the other one doesn't. One of these two has a dream given from God and therefore knows that God will work to fulfill the dream. The other one figures out that if she wants and dreams something, she better go get it herself. One of them is ready to receive what God will offer. The other has got to go and get it. If we go back to the cloak that Dinah talked about last week, the robe of many colors, I might say it this way to you. When it comes to the cloak of God's love and God's promises, that's a cloak that can only be received. It can never be grasped. One can never reach, manipulate, and maneuver to get the promises of God. One faithfully trusts to receive the promises that God will bring. I'm not really here to throw Potiphar's wife under the bus this morning. In fact, if I was going to throw anyone, I'd probably throw myself under the bus. I thought, how often in my life have I tried to maneuver and angle and plot to get what I thought God or other people owed me? Show up at the right meetings. Be nice to the right people. Go to the right school. Get the right degree. I can think of so many things that I've done that, that at, at some level were an effort to plot to maneuver, to position. And I didn't just do it with my career. I mean, I know I've done it with my family. Um, my wife uh, works from, uh, a number of times in the evenings. So oftentimes it was left to me when the children were little to bathe them. And I have to tell you, my three sons took the fastest baths in North America. Because the sooner I could push them through the tub and into their bed, the sooner I got back to my life. And I could watch that game. Or I could read that book, and I could grab that time for me. And they became people sort of in the way for the moment of the dream that I was pursuing. My middle son got married Saturday night and uh, had a number of groomsmen. Uh, and three of them uh, were former tennis opponents on the, uh, on the high school circuit of uh, my middle son. And I had this thought when it was over, you know, that those three guys at different points in their career, I had coached my son on how to beat each of them because I knew how to do it. 
And I could give my son that advantage. And then I could get him to fulfill the dreams that I had for him. And when I tell you that by the time the wedding rolled around, years later, it didn't matter. One of those former opponents came from a couple hundred miles away for the wedding. The others came, the other two came from several hundred to more than a thousand miles away to come and be there. And I thought how silly all that striving was so many years ago. The scouting, the coaching, the lectures, the grasping. You know, sometimes you and I don't plot for ourselves, but we'll plot for our kids. Get them in the right schools, with the right teachers, with the right things on their resume, and the right photo opportunities. And we remove them for the dreams that we have. Not so much the ones that God has for them. And I'll just save you the trouble. One day it just really doesn't matter. Because it's God's dreams that really count. And what Joseph knew was that God will fulfill the dreams that God had given Joseph. And poor Potiphar's wife, she had no one to fulfill the dreams that she conjured up in her own heart. So she had to go out and get it herself with predictable results. What I've learned is every time you grasp at a dream that God has not given you, you end up with a cloak but nothing inside it. One of the things that happens when we do all this grasping after our own dreams is it puts us in competition with each other. Instead of working together to have the world that God envisioned from the beginning, we, with our competing dreams, not working on God's dreams, compete with each other and split the world further apart. Ali Wiesel tells a story of his time in a concentration camp. And he said uh, one of the things the Nazis would do to amuse themselves was when they had a boxcar full of Jewish prisoners overcrowded and very hungry traveling from one place to another, the soldiers would throw some pieces of bread on the train and watch the hungry uh, Jewish boys and men dive in and fight and wrestle each other for the piece of bread, sometimes to the death. Bazell tells about the time when an old man's got a piece of bread and a younger man, much younger man, has got his arms around the throat of the older man to get that piece of bread. And the old man looks at the younger man and said, Son, son, I got this for you. And the younger man has strangled his father for the piece of bread. Pursuing our own dreams ends up to our own self-destruction. That's not the way Joseph did it. Joseph faithfully trusted that if God had given him a dream and a plan, God would work within his triumphs and disasters to bring that plan around. So Joseph rarely is seen grasping. The rabbis asked this question that I hadn't even thought of. It's when Joseph got so high up in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's like a cabinet-level guy, why didn't Joseph send word back to his father that, He was alive. He was doing okay. He was eating pretty well. He had come into a position of influence. And the rabbi's answer is this, that he didn't send word back home because he didn't want to out his brothers who had sold him into slavery. Joseph would not use his new position to get revenge on his brothers and hurt them in any way. 
He received what God had. And when it came to him in its fullness, he didn't use it against anybody else. People of destiny, people that dream, that's how they operate. What they have is what they've received. And what they do with what they receive is use it for the benefit of others. How long is Joseph in prison? Well, we haven't talked about it. That's next week. But he's there two years. Two years. At the end of two years, he gets called to come see Pharaoh and interpret a dream. Now, do you think in two years he's forgotten what Potiphar's wife did to him? Do you really think it's passed out of his mind in two years? No. But he gets to be second in command of Egypt. And as far as we know, he never does anything to get revenge on Potiphar's wife. Doesn't have her arrested. Doesn't send word to her husband of what she really did. None of it. He has a chance to throw Potiphar's wife under the bus, but he doesn't do it. So why should we? Joseph instead models a life of trust and faithfulness. And as Ian mentioned to the children, Joseph has a father who knows. A father who knows. And is watching over him. I suppose it could raise the question for us this morning. Is it ever okay to plan? Is it ever okay to plot? Is it ever okay to maneuver? Is it ever okay to grasp, to pursue? And I think the biblical answer is yes. Yes. Depends on what you're pursuing. Now, we don't get a lot of detail in the story, but my hunch is that Joseph, even in prison, even in a pit, continues his life of pursuing God. That even in a pit, even in prison, he holds on and grasps his relationship with the Heavenly Father. He's not going to let go. Is it okay to grab? Yeah, if what you're grabbing is God. Is it okay to pursue? Yes, if what you're pursuing is a deeper intimacy with God. Pursuing deeper intimacy with God will yield for you things that photo ops, image management, and the best arrangement you can do of your life will not deliver. Is it ever okay to grab? You bet. Grab hold of God. That's what Jesus said about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, seek first the kingdom and all this will get added to you. Pursue, plot, maneuver to be closer to God, and all of this will come to you. And I know of no better way to do that than to pursue the Son of God Himself. Plan, plot, move aggressively, do whatever you need to do to be in deeper intimacy and fellowship with the Son. And then the other stuff comes in by itself. The story is told, and I, I tend to believe now that it's true, but if not, it should be. And you've heard me tell you this story before. It starts before World War I. A man in, in, in the U.K. is very wealthy. He and his wife, though, only have one son, and she passes away. When she dies, the father and son become even closer, and he takes him to art shows, and they collect beautiful, very valuable pieces of art all over Europe and bring them back to the house. But World War I comes, and so the son goes, fights in the trenches. It is just a matter of months, and he's dead. The father's grief-stricken. A couple months later, there is a knock at the door. And the man at the door is dressed as a soldier, and he has a large package with him. 
And he introduces himself and he says, I fought with your son in the war and I admired him, admired him very much. He's a very special boy. I admired him so much that I painted this picture of him and I wanted you to have it. And the old man unwrapped the picture. It wasn't a wonderful portrait. This soldier wasn't the best painter, but it was of his son. So he took it and put it over the, the fireplace on the mantle. Well, some years later, the older man died himself. And there was a great estate sale to be held, an auction for all of the valuable pieces of art he had collected through the years. And so all sorts of people plotted, planned, manipulated to get their way into that house. And they were going to grab a piece of art for themselves. But before it was started, the man said, we're going to do this painting, said the auctioneer first. And he brought the painting from the mantle of the, of the wealthy man's only son and said, do I hear 50 pounds? People holding their numbers, sitting in their chair. Nobody moved. Nobody said anything. Finally, from the back, an elderly gentleman without a number stood up and said, I'll pay 50 pounds. Going once. Going twice. Going a third time, the old man turned out the butler of the house, knew this boy, loved this boy, and though it wasn't the most wonderful portrait and piece of art in the world, he wanted it to remind him of the son. And so as he came up to take possession, the auctioneer said, by the will of the owner of this estate, the auction is now over. And there was murmuring and grumbling from all the people who attended, hoping to grab some piece of art for themselves. And the auctioneer explained, according to the will of the father, it says, whoever buys my son gets all. The auction is over. And everything went to the butler who loved the son. I don't know if it's true, but it ought to be. Because it reminds us that there's only one thing worth pursuing. It is the son of God. And when we find and hold on to him, we need grasp no longer, for then God will give us all things with him.